If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 this morning and continue on to the end of the third chapter. This will probably be part one of this section. I was a attempting to cover this whole section at one time, but I found out that I had more than I wanted to say than could be said in three hours. So, uh, if you would, uh, Esther chapter 2, beginning verse 19, hear the word of the Lord. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they should be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews." And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink.
but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for more grace this morning as we read your holy word. We pray that you would give us better insight into the mind of the Lord. You give us better understanding of your will, uh, better hope for the kingdom of God, and uh, a more clear understanding of the hope of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last Christmas, um, Carol, my mother-in-law, Ellen and I went to go see the play Fiddler on the Roof. First time I had ever seen it. I mean, I, it's been on a movie for many, many years. I missed it somehow. But if you haven't seen it, it's based about a group of Jews living in Russia at the turn of the 20th century when more and more anti-Semitism was spreading throughout the country, and they're just beginning to suffer some of the early aspects of persecution. And in one early scene in the play, the patriarch of the family explains their precarious way of life, living in Russia during this time, comparing it as if they were a fiddler playing on the roof of a house. And he says it this way, In our little village, you might say, every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy, you know, but if you ask why we stay up there, if it's so dangerous. Well, we stay because this is our home. Of course, at that time, the modern nation of Israel didn't exist, and so clearly Russia was their home. There was nowhere else for them to go. But in the time that Esther and Mordecai lived in Persia, in the capital city of Susa, that wasn't true. They had a home to go to. They had the promised land to which they could return, in fact, to which they should have returned. We find out that there was an edict that was signed back in 538 B.C. by a previous Persian emperor, Cyrus the Great, who allowed all of the Jews to go home and to rebuild their homeland, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And many Jews took that opportunity and went home. But for one reason or another, we see that Mordecai's family chose to stay behind. Now, this is 50 years after that edict had taken place. So for one reason or another, the entire generation had decided to stay in a pagan land when they could have returned. Now, it's very similar to what takes place in the book of Ruth, if you remember. We see that there's some critique, if you will, of uh, Naomi's family for having left Israel during a time of famine and gone to Moab when so many others had stayed behind. And as a result, later we see she feels she's cursed. She feels that there's something bitter going on because of all the bad things that have happened as they're far away from home. Well, now we see that Mordecai and Esther are both somewhat thriving in this pagan atmosphere. We see that they both have uh, advanced, if you will, up the ladder in different ways. Mordecai is now one of the administrators. He's a civil servant in the kingdom of Persia. He has gained in wealth. He has gained in status. And, and likewise, we see Esther has won the heart of the king. She's now living a life of luxury and ease in the palace. So clearly, uh, you can see why it was not much of a dilemma for them to stay. Why would we go back to Jerusalem and have to eck out a, a, a difficult life trying to rebuild things when we already have everything here? We have a life of ease and, and luxury. 
It's quite a different perspective, though, from the psalmist who writes Psalm 137, who's writing, again, around the same period of time as this. He says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And yet here we see Mordecai and Esther. Jerusalem's not even upon their lips. You never hear anything about it. You never hear anything about God, about his law, about anything else. It seems that they have found indeed a greater joy for their life than what's going on in Jerusalem. At least that's the way it appears. All of this is absent. All of this is not mentioned in the book of Esther. No mention of God, no mention of his law, no mention of anything related to their homeland. While Esther is staying in the king's palace, you'll notice in verse 19 of chapter 2, that Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. What does that mean? Well, it means that he is an official of some sort in the king's palace. He's either an administrator or a judge working on behalf of the pagan empire. If you remember, the same type of position was given to Lot in the city of Sodom. Do you remember this? After Abraham and Lot decided to part ways because they had way too many flocks and too much going on, early on we see in Genesis chapter 13, verse 12, that Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. In other words, he's still keeping his flocks, but he's just outside the city of Sodom. But then there's a change. Next chapter, we're told that, well, Genesis 14, verse 12, we're told Lot was taken hostage by the enemies of Sodom, for he was actually now dwelling in the city itself. He went from dwelling outside in a tent, now he is in the city, dwelling in a house. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, we're informed that Lot is now sitting in the gates of Sodom, acting as a judge on behalf of the city. Someone who had tried to separate himself at first realized through the desire for wealth and other things. He got more and more drawn into the life of that pagan empire. And as you know, because of that, his family would suffer much under the judgment of God. They would lose everything. He would lose his wife and his daughters would turn in all sorts of perverse directions. Not a good outcome. Well, in the same manner, we're now seeing Esther and Mordecai Again, perhaps out of a desire for wealth, a desire for security, are now pursuing more and more ties with this pagan empire, rubbing shoulders with evil men. Now, I want to clarify for you before I go any further, because we live in a different age, in a different covenant, different time. I want to say, first of all, it's not sinful for Christians to live in secular cities. Okay, so... Even if you're in Fenton right now or one of the surrounding areas, it's not evil if you chose to live in Detroit. Although I wouldn't recommend it, but it's not evil. You could do it. Same thing goes for any other large city, Chicago, whatever. It's not evil to do that, so I'm not suggesting that at all. It's also not evil for a Christian to work in the secular government. It's not an evil thing. Again, not the choice I would make, but if that's something that God has called you to, that's great, as long as you can use that for the Lord's purpose. God can use us in whatever place he puts us. Uh, but know that the more you pursue the things of the world, the more trials you're going to have in regards to the ways of the world. The great difference today is we don't have a physical home that God has commanded us to return to. 
other than our eternal home. That's the home that we're longing for. In the meantime, we're living in a pagan town. We're living in an area that's not our home. We are always meant to see ourselves as aliens and strangers here on earth. This is not our home. We don't want to get too tightly close to this place that we live in. But it was precisely because Israel was disobedient to God that she found herself in Babylon and in these other cities in the first place. It's because she didn't seek the Lord that now she is held captive and in an exile. And once they have been allowed to go home, we see it's a very small number. In fact, if you're following along with our Bible readings again, we're starting Nehemiah this week and Monday. You're going to see Nehemiah's praying for the first chapter because Jerusalem's a mess. The, the, the gates are still torn down. There's nothing there because no one has come to help build. Everybody's staying in these other places. They're happy to be in pagan lands when they should be with God's people. They, they're not following the Lord. And then again, as we see more ongoing disobedience, if you will, God is still able to work through Esther and through Mordecai, even though they have made one compromise after another because they have hidden their identity. That's why Esther has now married to this guy. Uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, but the, this only happens because they have kept their identity a secret. I mean, how, how, how much worse could it get? I mean, if you think about it from Hester's perspective, if you really blatantly say what's really going on here, Esther's married to an uncircumcised pagan man who is a tyrannical womanizer who actually thinks that he is God. Awesome marriage, Right? How, how worse could it get? Well, we're soon going to see that it can get much worse. But that's the common temptation, is it not? For every believer living in a secular realm, we're all sort of drawn towards security. We're drawn toward advancement. We're drawn to something that would help us become more like the world because it's just easier. We want to get ahead. I mean, whether it's a teacher wanting to get tenure, hides his identity. If it's a Someone who's trying to get a promotion at their office, hiding their identity. It's a student in the school, wants to fit in, doesn't want to be hated, doesn't want to be labeled, hides his or her identity. But at what cost? You might enjoy something of the world's success, might enjoy more financial advancement. But what comes with that? That's the question. And why is it such a big deal? Well, just go along with the flow. Just do what the rest of the world is doing. Just say what the rest of the world is saying, and you'll be fine. Nobody will mess with you. You'll, you'll be safe. These are the things that we wrestle with today. It's no different than the book of Esther. It's interesting. I, when I chose to preach through the book of Esther, I, I wasn't taking into account exactly what's happening this month or anything else of that nature, but it's just amazing how many correlations there are. It's, it's like you're reading today's news in Esther, in the Bible. It's, it's really not much different at all. To complicate things, though, there are literally people in the world then as well as today who want to kill anyone who stands identifying themselves with God and his law. Just look this week. I mean, we're constantly still hearing about death threats made against Supreme Court justices, particularly those who identify with God's law. We're seeing people that are giving death threats to anyone who speaks out against the transgender agenda. 
Why? Because they're identifying themselves with God and his law. That can't be acceptable. It's not just individuals that are angry with Christians, but sometimes it's entire governments. We see this in Scripture. We see this today. For one reason or another, there's a, a desire to overthrow the law of God. There's a desire to get rid of those who tried to uphold the law of God. Psalm 2, I mean, it's such a pivotal psalm that sort of sets the tone, if you will, for much of the rest of the psalm. Psalm 1 and 2 together, they sort of set the difference between the godly and the wicked. And Psalm 2, the psalmist asks the question, why? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? He says, the kings of the earth, they set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed one, against Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. And at times, this happens in outright revolutions within a country. Sometimes it happens simply through the edicts of kings. And sometimes they take place in secret plots by misguided individuals who are thirsty for power. We see a combination of these two things in our text today. In the first part, in the latter section of chapter 2, we see a secret plot of two men against the king of Persia. Out of power. They want more. They want something. Then in chapter 3, we see again two men that are seeking to overthrow not the kingdom of Persia, but overthrow the kingdom of God. Same reason. They want power. They want freedom. So I want to take a look at these two instances, and, and we'll, like I said, next week we'll cover it a little bit more, but we don't have the exact time of the events that are recorded in, in the latter part of chapter 2, but we know that it takes place sometime Esther has been chosen to be queen. Uh, again, according to the time schedule, Esther was made queen in the seventh year of King Ahasuerus, or the seventh year of King Xerxes. And so this assassination attempt takes place sometime after that. Could be soon after, could be a few years after, we're not told. But in verse 21 and following, we find these two eunuchs, uh, Bigtha, which Bigthan uh, and Teresh, they're angry with the king and angry with him enough to want to kill him. And we're told that they are the guarders of the threshold. Now those who guard the threshold are those who basically guard the king's bedroom itself. So they have the most opportunity to cause potential harm to the king. They're the ones who are supposed to be the most trusted men in the realm, and yet they're the ones who are the angry and, and want to kill him. Again, you can see why it'd be such a dangerous thing to be posting the addresses of Supreme Court justices today for the same reason. You're telling them where the threshold is. Here's how you get rid of them. Here's how you get a hold of them to kill them. The Mordecai cats catches wind of their plans. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king, and the, the plot is foiled. Swift justice is brought against them. Even though your, your text says that they were hung on the gallows, literally it, it's, uh, they're impaled on poles. That's how the Persians uh, executed capital punishment. They didn't hang people. They impaled people, uh, sort of a front runner to the later Roman crucifixions. But although Mordecai had compromised on a number of issues in order to gain the, the, the status that he has, again, keep in mind he's hidden his identity as well, but now he's proven himself loyal to the king, and the Lord has used his position, even through his compromise. I, I, that's what always astounds me in Scripture, that no matter 
how great our weakness is, no matter how much sin has taken place, no matter how much compromise has taken place, the Lord still can work through that for our good. Again, God's grace is greater than our sin. You see it again and again and again in Scripture. But in, in the Persian Empire, when someone has proven themselves loyal to the king, loyal to the empire, usually they're quite handsomely rewarded. The, the historian Herodotus tells us it's very plain that anyone who shows himself loyal in this sense will get much treasure and also get the title that he's looking for. But again, we see in verse 23 that his noble actions are recorded in the official book of the Chronicles of King. Technically, it's not a book. It's a scroll amongst many other scrolls. You could see how possibly it would be forgotten about. One reason or another, the king forgets what Mordecai does. He's never acknowledged, he's never promoted, he's never praised. It's interesting though, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 14, as we're taught uh, about our role in, in reference to the government, the secular government in which we live, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that even pagan rulers, pagan leaders, pagan uh, all those in authority over us, they too are sent by God and their job is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You ever catch that part? We know that they bear the sword for the purpose of punishing those who do evil, but their job is also to praise those who do good. But as you and I both know, it's not often, is it, that the good are praised? Uh, it's not often that they're acknowledged. It's not often that we see that at all. Uh, we do see that uh, most of the time we see them trying to punish the evil, but oftentimes as well in, in corrupt governments, what we see instead is the good are being punished and the evil are being praised. And that's what we see here in the book of Esther. Uh, Mordecai is, is forgotten. Nothing is acknowledged about the good and the loyalty that he's expressing in his own country, but instead we see this other man who is going to be promoted. Uh, perhaps that's the reason why the two eunuchs decided they wanted to kill the king because they were passed over for promotion as well. You never know. Uh, but we'll see eventually, because the king doesn't praise the good, supposedly, uh, eventually uh, he offends some other person, and we find that the captain of the guard, along with another eunuch, finally assassinate this same king about ten years later. So you would think he would have learned his lesson, but he's not the smartest king, as you'll see throughout the book. Nevertheless, Mordecai has proven his loyalty. He's proven that he's a good citizen. He's proven that he respects authority and is willing to um, preserve it. But when we get to chapter 3, more time has elapsed. Don't know how exactly how long. Uh, but now the king is promoting and celebrating another man in the kingdom who is described as one of the enemies of God's people. Now this is the first time we're introduced to the figure of Haman in the book of Esther. It seems as if he's the primary antagonist in the book, but I tell you, he really, he's not. He's just a pawn. There's a greater antagonist than he, but who's not mentioned by name uh, in Scripture. Esther, because Esther doesn't talk about God, doesn't talk about spiritual things whatsoever in the book. Uh, we're not seeing behind the veil, if you will, like we do in the book of Job. You know, in the book of Job, we see that all these evil things are happening, but we're we're let in on the fact that the devil's working through all of this and is, in fact, asked to attack Job. Well, in this particular case, the same thing is happening. Somehow, 
the devil is working through Haman. It's, it's, it'll be clearly seen, I think, later on. But if you, if you compare this to Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, uh, it's an interesting passage there. Daniel the prophet has prayed, and he's asking for you know response and, and knowing how to minister to the people in Babylon at this time. And what we see is that the angel who comes to minister to him tells him that somehow he's been hindered from coming. How has he been hindered from coming? Well, uh, we find out that there is some mysterious figure that is referred to as the prince of the kingdom of Persia who the archangel Michael fought with in order to get to where he's at. So in other words, there's a darker, more sinister figure that's at work in Persia. Same thing's happening we see at this time. It's, again, not, uh, not a far distant time from what's going on in Daniel to the time that's going on here in our book in Esther. There's a dark force at work behind the evil men that are seeking to, uh, to kill God's people. But with that being said, when we're first introduced to Haman in chapter 3, verse 1, the author tells us that King Ahasuerus has, has promoted this man named Haman, that he's an Agagite, that he's the son of Hamadatha, and he's advanced him, seating him above all the officials who are with him. Now, this is a problem for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, after hearing of Mordecai's help in thwarting the king, we're expecting that he ought to be advanced. This is, this is how the chapter ends. And then the chapter 3 abruptly shows he's not advanced, but instead the king's going to advance this other guy who is an enemy of the Jews. That makes no sense whatsoever. But then second, we're told... But we're not told why Haman is promoted. We have no idea why he promotes him. More than likely, it's for some underhanded reason, because he's not an ethical king. He doesn't care. More than likely, uh, it's something shady. But, but we are told something of Haman's ancestry, and, and it's quite fascinating, because he's, he's said to be the son of Hamadatha. Now, Hamadatha literally means he that troubles the wall. So that should... It's meant to tip us off that, uh, okay, so this guy is the son of some treasonous figure, some lawbreaker of some kind, and yet the king in his stupidity doesn't know about that and now advances his son to be the same type of powerful figure who can potentially cause great damage. In addition to that, we're also told that he is from the tribe of the Agagites. Now, uh, the Agagites are descendants of the Amalekites. Now, for those of you who are not up to speed with Old Testament history, I'll give you real briefly Old Testament history, just because I'd love to do it, and I don't care if you don't like it. Here's what's happening. All right, so it goes all the way back to the time of the Exodus. Exodus 17, right after the Israelites have been released from their captivity in Egypt, God has brought them through the Red Sea. They're making their way towards Sinai, and their long line of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, they're on their way to meet with God on the mountain to receive the law of God. Well, on their way, there is a tribe known as the Amalekites who attack them mercilessly. And where they attack them is the worst part about it. They purposely go and attack the rear of this long line of people where all the elderly are, all of the pregnant women are, all the women with young children are. They purposely go and kill them. I don't know if you saw the clip. Um, actually, it took place about a year ago. I just saw it, something, some news clip recently 
about a young male driver in California somewhere. Did you hear about this? He's in his car. He sees a woman pushing her baby in a stroller. He purposely rams her. Have you seen this? You can see the video online. It's horrendous. I've never seen anything like it in my life. The mother is flipped over, and immediately she gets up. I mean, she must have just super adrenaline pumping at this time, and then she goes and immediately goes checks on her baby because she's, she's, she's absolutely fearful that her baby's dead because he hit the stroller head on. Uh, it was good to see that there's some sense of conscience in some other people as he, he slowly waits to see what happens, and then he tries to drive off really fast. Well, there's a, a very just person in the truck going the opposite direction, purposely rams him to stop it, so he takes the, the, the brunt of the punishment to stop it. But the fact that he does it, this, it's a 16-year-old man, boy, they say, but man, driving a car, purposely trying to kill a woman and her baby. The Amalekites are much like that. They're purposely going after the weak, purposely trying to harm those who can't defend themselves. But unlike in the state of California, where apparently a perpetrator who does such a thing can get off scot-free, they had, basically the boy has to go to youth camp. No prison time at all. Clearly, this is a sociopath who's going to be doing a lot worse months from now, but California, there you go. When the Lord sees what the Amalekites have done to the weakest of the Israelites, he immediately tells Moses to take out the people, take up the sword against the Amalekites. Remember, that's the, the passage where Moses is told to raise his hands in the air with the staff showing the power of the Lord. And they, they, they kill all those that were marauding and, and pillaging at that time. But we also see that the Lord immediately brings a curse upon the Amalekites and swears to wipe off the entire tribe from the face of the earth because of the evil that they have committed against God's people. Remember, God says that he will bless those who bless Israel. He will curse those who curse Israel. So he promises to wipe out this whole tribe from the face of the earth. Now, if that wasn't enough to cause bad blood, <laughs> um, with the Amalekites and the Israelites. We find out that Haman and Mordecai have an even more bad blood than that. For about 500 years later, uh, after the Exodus is taking place, Agag is a prominent king of the Amalekites. Again, they're attacking the Israelites in the Promised Land. So the Lord tells King Saul, the very first king of Israel, to go and go into battle against the Amalekites. But he says, when you do that, though, they are devoted to destruction, so remember to kill every single one of them. Do not let any of them live. Well, as you know, King Saul, if you know your Old Testament history, not quite the guy who's always obeying the Lord. He decides to preserve all the best of the flocks and the rams and the goats and whatever else they have and leaves King Agag alive. Well, when God sends the prophet Samuel to confront him, he's not pleased whatsoever. And we see that uh, Samuel immediately asks him to bring forth King Agag, who seems to be very happy at this time because he's like, well, obviously I've been spared, so there's no fear whatsoever. We see the prophet of the Lord takes the sword and hacks him to pieces in obedience to God's law to devote this man to destruction. And the reason, this is the very reason why Saul loses his kingdom. 
because not only does he not obey God's law, but he's seeking to countermand God's curse, to go against what God has said, and preserving that which God has said shall not live. But again, that's not the whole story. You still with me on the history part? Later on, when King Saul is killed in battle, or at least he attempts to throw himself on a sword because he knows he's about to lose very miserably, it's an Amalekite who finishes him off and takes the crown off his head and hands it to King David, thinking he's done a good deed. When he comes before King David, King David immediately takes up the sword and slaughters him too for daring to raise his hand against God's anointed one. Now, notice again Psalm 2. Those who seek to throw off the authority of God's anointed one. This is ongoing animosity between the people of God and, and their enemies. So what we have here, to finally add the kicker, if you will, to the story, well, Haman is an Agagite. Mordecai is a Benjamite, a direct descendant of King Saul. So you can see why this would cause a little bit of bad blood. Well, what we have here is the son of an old Israelite king serving alongside of the son of an Agagite king, but now the Persian king has elevated the enemy of God over God's people and has said that everyone in the kingdom has to bow before the man whom God has cursed to praise the man whom God has cursed. Simply too much for Mordecai to bear not only has he been overlooked for advancement, but now he's been told he has to revere, elevate, bow before this man who's the most bitterest of enemies to Israel. Now, anytime a man was elevated to this type of position, other men would naturally bow before the one that, God, that, that the king has chosen. But it's, it's interesting, in this particular case, again, we have another edict from the king. His edicts are always very misplaced and kind of untimely and weird. But the very fact that he tells people that they have to bow before Haman probably suggests that he's not the type of guy that most people would want to bow before. In other words, they know his character. Not too many people like this guy, probably. They know he's evil. And yet the king says, you must obey, you must bow before Haman. It's now an edict. It's now the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it cannot be revoked. So whenever Haman walks through the city gates, anyone who is at the city gates immediately has to bow down. How great is Haman kind of thing? Well, this is where Mordecai gets himself in trouble because he has elevated himself within the pagan empire, because he has not focused on God, but rather focused on his advancement. Where is he at? He's at the city gate every single day. And every time Haman's walking through the gates, guess who is required to bow down and say, how great and awesome is Haman. Eventually we see that, uh, it's sort of a fun little side note here that uh, it's interesting. Haman doesn't notice that Mordecai is not bowing. You would think that, you know, if you're, at all observant, you would see some guy refusing to be standing while everybody else is bowing down on the ground. But this shows you how great the guy thought he was. He's just like, you know, trying to soak it in that everybody's bowing before him. He doesn't even realize that Mordecai is not bowing before him. But it, 
other servants do. And the other servants continued to badger him day after day. Why are you transgressing the law of the king? Why are you not bowing? And it's interesting, again, the phrasing of the word says they're questioning him to see whether his words would stand since he refuses to bow and continues to stand himself. Well, will your words stand? You think you're standing now? We'll see. There's some debate amongst the commentators of whether or not Mordecai was choosing the wrong hill to die on, if you will, which makes sense um, if you look through the rest of Old Testament history as well as the New Testament commands that we receive in, in reference to secular governments. We see that many times Joseph is bowing before Pharaoh. Jacob is bowing before Pharaoh. Abraham's bowing before evil Hittites. There are many, many examples in the Old Testament in which God's people are having to bow before evil leaders. And in the New Testament, uh, Paul tells us very plainly in Romans 13, to give respect to whom respect is owed, to give honor to whom honor is owed. And he doesn't mean those who are worthy of it, but those who have that position alone. So in other words, even Nero, at the time that Romans was written, the most evil dictator you could possibly get, Paul's saying you need to give him honor because his position is due honor because God has put him in that position. That's difficult for us, especially in America. We're democratic. We don't like um, we don't like evil men, and we certainly don't like whatever that other political party is and what they stand for. No amens on that one. <laughs> it's true, though. We, we we naturally want to praise our choice people and 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 uh, bring bad words to the other. That's not what we're called to do. But in this particular case, the other commentators would also say. But God has cursed this man. How could then Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai, bless the man whom God has cursed? You see, this is it's a dilemma. It really is. And I realize that not all of us are called to fight the same battles, right? Not not all of us will come to the same conclusion in terms of our own conscience of what we ought to do in these difficult times. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't want to be known for drawing a line in the sand over trivial matters. I remember even as a church when COVID first broke out and then I was in another country and stuck there. I come back and everybody's fighting about masks. And I thought, I don't want to be known as the church that fights about masks. What a stupid thing to fight about. Now, granted, both sides, very adamant that it, it's either for mask or against mask. I don't care. I mean, literally, that was my stance on the whole thing. I try to say it nicer than that, but inwardly, I'm like, oh, I don't care. There are many more things to fight about than this. It's funny, even we went to Columbia a few weeks ago. If you thought that America, the United States is hypocritical when it comes to masks, it's even worse there. Uh, literally... Uh, <laughs> To get on the bus, we had to get on the bus to go a couple places. You have to have a mask to get on the bus. And you have to buy a mask from them, basically. So you, you buy a mask. It's, it's changed. It's, it's worthless. You buy the mask. You put it on your face. You take a step on the bus. You take it off. You sit down. Literally. Same thing for the airport. You have to have a mask to cross the threshold. But as soon as you cross it, no one's wearing a mask. Not even the bus driver. No one's wearing a mask, but you have to have the mask. And again, I mean, I could fight over that, but I'm like, it's so stupid. It really is stupid. But nevertheless, it is what it is. Now, if you wear a mask, great. I'm not beating you up for wearing a mask, but just obviously every one of us is struggling with hypocrisy 
these days. But I, I don't want to be known as someone who's fighting over stupid things. And this is stupid. And the reason why is because there are times in which I have to fight for things that are important. There are times in which I can't bow when everyone else is bowing. I can't stand when everyone else is standing. I can't celebrate when everybody else is celebrating. I can't. The, the Scripture has, has told me I, I stand for something different. I bow for someone different. I celebrate something different. Now, since June is now officially Pride Month, in our own little town now, since last year, is celebrating Pride Night. This coming Thursday it is, in case you're wondering. I, I think it's important that you understand why we as a church don't stand for this. I, I, especially for the younger generations, I think we're losing our understanding on these things. Uh, it, it's not because we're bigoted. It's not because we're fearful. It's not because we're full of hate. It's simply because we serve a God, a holy God, who doesn't accept any form of sexual immorality. None. Whether that is fornication, whether that is sex between a, a man and a woman that are not married, whether that is any other type of transgender, it doesn't matter what it is. We serve a holy God. And the very concept of pride in regards to sexual immorality or any other form of immorality, undermines God's law and denies the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if I could say it plainly this way, I can't buy into the false narrative that constantly the world is promoting because there's a better story that's true that I am called to share. And if I agree with this false narrative... I undermine the very hope that I have in my own salvation and the hope that I have to present to every one of you. It's not because I hate someone. It's because the gospel is that good. And you mess with the gospel and there's no hope for anyone. I don't have any hope to give you to tell you, okay, well, here's my good news for you. You'll never change. You'll never get better. You will always be a miserable person how is that good news? It's not. The good news of the gospel is for thieves, murderers, sexually immoral people, all of us. Every horrible thing that we have ever done, God's grace is greater than every sin. That's the hope of the gospel, you see. But if I buy into a false narrative, I'm rejecting the gospel itself. You see, I, I, it's not a matter of just I'm compromising a little. I undermine the very story of the Bible. All of it. It's gone completely if I stand with those who stand for these things. Even if the whole world stands up to celebrate things like this, we're still called to shine like the sun in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, I won't, uh, I won't sugarcoat this for you whatsoever. You won't be surprised whatsoever that if you refuse to stand with those who stand, celebrate with those who celebrate, don't be surprised if the world hates your guts. Jesus already promised that in the New Testament reading. We already said if he was persecuted, we will be persecuted for the same thing. We stand for the same things that he stands for. And here's why. 
I don't know about you, but I, I, when I was a young man, I really struggled with who I was. What in the world? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Why did God make me so freakishly tall and so freakishly good-looking? I, I, I don't know. Sorry. Had to throw that out every now and then. Why did he make me this way? I can tell you I never found my identity in sports. I, I never found my identity in academics. I never found my identity in politics or whatever it is that people try to find their identity in. But when I found my identity in Christ, for the first time, I knew hope. For the first time, I knew peace and joy that has never left me. Even though, you know, there are bad days that all of us experience. I would never, ever, ever tell anyone that there's no hope for them to change. When I have seen how the Lord has changed me. How the Lord has turned someone who absolutely hated people. I wish you could have seen me. You may not think I'm that great now. I get it. But man, you should have seen me before. I mean, even when I got married, uh, it's, I, I may have shared this before you, but I got married and, and I'm introducing Ellen to all my family members and friends that I used to know. And blah, blah, all of them are saying, you, you should have said, he was just a horrible person. They're all saying this to her. And I'm like, well, it's true. You know, it's true. That God saves sinners. I, it, to, to, not, to not stand up for that. What, what else is there to stand up for? There's nothing. We, we honestly, we look at the world in which we live. It's chaotic. It's, it's, it's horrible. All the stuff that's going on right now. It's just death, death, and death works all around us. There's, there's no hope in the world. There's only hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, so those who continue to put pressure upon me to tolerate, to affirm, to celebrate a lifestyle that denies the gospel, I can't do that. I can't. And I, I, I need you to see, it's, it, 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 that's how it is for every single person in this room who trusts in Christ. You can't buy into something that undermines the very hope for which you live. You can't. I saw a, a clip this week of a sitcom back in the 90s. I was watching some news show that, it, that it, it, um, spoke about this clip. and it, It's based about a man who decides to, to walk in an AIDS march back in the 90s. And uh, he's, you know, he's, he's happy to support those who are struggling with AIDS and to try to find a cure for AIDS and, and all the above. But every other person in the AIDS march is wearing an AIDS ribbon, and he refuses to wear the ribbon. He's like, I'm marching, ain't I? That should be enough. Why do I have to wear the ribbon? And then everyone around him immediately demands, you have to wear the ribbon, or else you don't support AIDS. You have to wear the ribbon. And eventually, by the end of the, the show, uh, the whole crowd gangs up and beats him just starts beating on him, and he's, he barely can finish the, the, the march because he's just been beaten to a pulp. And of course, the whole scene is it's meant to serve a satire because back in the 90s, you were just beginning to see some of the vitriolic attitude that was being displayed in our culture towards certain social movements. But at the end of it, you're meant to laugh because you're like, oh, that's, that's just ridiculous. But that's what we live in now. That's where we're at. I mean, I, I don't know, but uh, you fast forward to our time. Last year, 
was Pride Night in, in New York City, June, same thing, Washington Square Park. I, I just found it, again, I'm always hearing about the news a year later. I'm, I'm always behind the times. But a vendor was maliciously beaten up by a gang of men because he refused to change the American flag for a homosexual flag put on his, his place of business. Just a you know, local hot dog stand or whatever it was. He refused to do that. And so a, a gang of men just started beating him to the pulp. You have to wear the ribbon. You have to do what we say. We saw this last week. Five baseball players uh, all uh, believe in Christ. Uh, they all play for the Tampa Bay Rays. Severely criticized by every news network just about in the world and a bunch of other people as well because they refuse to wear a rainbow patch on their sleeve. And they're trying to explain it. It's, it's because of our Christian faith. We, we simply can't do that, which made the people all the more angry. How dare you? So full of hate. These are just two examples of life imitating art. I mean, literally, what we laughed about, supposedly, in the 90s is now no longer a laughing matter. Now young people are being criticized for not displaying their pronouns on online bios. Now young people are, they have to, to, to use the same screen, the same filter that every other person does for the latest social movement. Regardless of what it is, if you don't say, I support this, I don't wear this ribbon, then I hate your guts. It's the culture in which we live. The rulers, along with our cultural leaders, have told us, praise evil, hate that which is good. If we don't do it, we don't bow to the pressure, we're going to be stigmatized, we're going to be denounced, and as Mark said, we could very well be much more persecuted in other ways in the years to come. Wouldn't it be just so much easier just to bow down like everybody else? Just, just put the screen on, just say whatever your dumb pronoun is. March in whatever parade that everybody else is marching in. When Haman is told that Mordecai refuses to bow before him and that he is a Jew, Haman is infuriated, but not just with him, but with every single Jew living in the world that day because they all stand for a God who is a lawgiver. And he can't stand the law of God and won't, will not abide by it. So instead he cocks up another secret plot, similar to the one that we mentioned already with the other two men. This also involves another man, but this time a more passive partner, a more ignorant partner, the king himself, who doesn't think, who doesn't study, has no idea what he's talking about. We'll look into that a little next week. But again, it looks now as if Finally, the enemies of God have all the power, have all the authority, and they can do whatever they want. That's, that's basically the gist now. So once again, we see this long-standing animosity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. It's the same story. An animosity between these two that started way back when, and it looks as if the serpent's seed is going to win this time. It, it seems so lopsided, the power on the one side. And yet, I, I tell you, because I can't finish all of this today, Esther's story is not yet finished. Even more so, God's story is not yet finished. We still haven't reached the end of the story that we've been told. But I can tell you, if I fast forward just a few years, God finally sends His Son 
to earth, the serpent crusher. And he comes to save his people from their sin, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, the pagans, even the sexually immoral, all of those who have hated him and rebelled against him. He has come to lay down his life for those who acknowledge their sin. But unlike Mordecai, who has sort of uh, shaky motivations, we're not really sure why he's doing what he's doing, Christ Jesus knows exactly what he's fighting for. Exactly. He purposely has come to earth to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins, to oppose the proud, to give grace to the humble, to proclaim good news to those who are poor in spirit, to proclaim the recovering of sight to those who are spiritually blind, to set at liberty all of those who are oppressed by the devil in whatever sin that they're oppressed by, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that year we are still in. This is the year of Jubilee. This is the day of salvation. This is the day that the Lord has made. And in it we are glad. We rejoice. Because there's finally good news. There's finally hope for sinners from the least to the greatest. But only the humble will hear this message. Those who are proud refuse to hear it. They will not tremble at God's word. They will not understand what God is seeking to do. Nevertheless, that's the story that we're commissioned to share, that Christ Jesus has come. The serpent crusher has come. There's hope for every one of us. Every single one of us, there's hope. Which is why we can't participate in any false narrative that seeks to undermine that message. You can't. It's impossible. The proper response to any sin will never be pride. Only humility. Why? Because none of us is the main character in the story. None of us have done it perfectly. None of us have lived the good life. It all points back to Christ. That's why the Scripture says, let the one who boasts, boast in what? Boast in the Lord. If we're to boast in anything, Paul says, boast in our weakness so that Christ's power might rest upon us. We're not to boast in our sin, but rather to boast in the cross of Christ who laid down His life for our sin, to give us hope. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16, let me close with these words. Again, it's said it before many times. I'll say it again. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost But then listen to what he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, what is he saying? Paul the murderer, Paul the hater of Christianity, the hater of Christ, God was so patient with to show us how patient he is with all of us who have rebelled against him, all of us who have walked in sinful, dark paths. There's hope for each one of us. This is not a fight between us and some other people group that chooses to go in a different direction. This is a fight between Christ and the devil. Who do you want to align yourself with? The proud align themselves with the devil. They don't know it. That's that's what's happening. Only the humble align themselves with Christ because they know 
He is our only hope. He is our life. The very reason that we live. Anything else is futile. It's vain. It doesn't offer any source of encouragement whatsoever. No edification. So I encourage you this morning, uh, regardless of where you stand, again, I'm not trying to politicize this thing. It, it's been politicized by our country, but I'm just trying to tell you again the simple gospel story. God sent his son to save sinners. And if you humble yourself, admit your sin, he will save you. If you humble yourself and admit that you stink at holiness, he will give you the help and the power that you need to continue to fight against it. He's not going to change you overnight. You're not going to stop whatever it is that you've been doing all of your life. Your habitual sins are not going to stop tomorrow. But the Lord will work in you through the power of the Spirit to hate it more and more, to fight against it more and more, and to learn what it is to live a life that is pleasing to God. He gives you the power to do that. And to say that he can't is from the very pit of hell. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would help us. We are not any better than any other person who struggles with sin, regardless of what type of sin it is. Um, it would be pharisaical for us to even believe that in our own hearts that somehow we think, oh, I don't struggle. I, I'm so much better. I'm, I'm not like that man. I'm not like that tax collector, that sinner, that sexually immoral person. The truth of the matter is we are, if not at least as evil, more so. So many little sins that hide behind big sins that when we refuse to admit the pride in our heart, when we refuse to see the sin for what it is, to hate it and to turn to Christ in hope, Lord, we pray that you would show us our own sin more and more daily. We would not become hate mongers that we're being accused of being. Pray instead, Lord, that you would give us a, a love for you, a love for our neighbor, a love for the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would not be ashamed of it. We would not seek to become enemies of people for no reason, but when they choose to make us their enemies, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be faithful even unto the end, we pray in Jesus' name.